Chapters five and six of Love's Bitterest Cup by E. D. E. and Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter five: The Fortunes of Odalite. To explain the mysterious letter written by Elfrida Force to her housekeeper, we must condense the family history of the last three years, which had passed without any incident worth recording, and bring it up to the time when events full of importance for good or evil followed each other in rapid succession. Mr. Force, on removing his family to Washington, in the month of February, three years before, took apartments in one of the best hotels for himself, his wife, and their eldest daughter, while he placed his two younger daughters and his little ward at a first-class boarding school. The Forces had some friends and acquaintances in the city, and to these they sent cards, which were promptly honored by calls. For the sake of Odalite, Mrs. Force chose to enter the gay society, for which she herself had little heart. The trousseau prepared for the girl's luckless, broken marriage came well into use as an elegant outfit for the fashionable season in the gay capital. Mr. Force escorted his wife and daughter to all the receptions, concerts, balls, and dinners to which they were invited, and everywhere he felt pride and pleasure in the general admiration bestowed upon his beautiful wife and their lovely daughter. But the instinct of caste was strong in the breast of Elfrida Force. She and her daughter were recipients of many elegant entertainments, and she wished to reciprocate, but could not do so while living at a hotel. His wife's wishes, joined to his own longing for the freedom of domestic life, added zeal to Abel Force's quest of a house. But it was at the end of the session of Congress before his desire was gratified. Then a United States senator, whose term of office had expired, offered his handsome and elegantly furnished house for rent. Mr. and Mrs. Force inspected the premises and leased them for three years. They did not wish to go in at once, as the season was at an end, and the summer at hand. But as soon as the retiring statesman and his family had vacated the house, Mr. Force sent in a squad of house-cleaners to prepare the place for the new tenants. When the schools closed for the long summer vacation, he gave little Rosemary Hedge into the hands of Miss Grandier, who had come to Washington to fetch her home, and with his wife and three daughters left the city for an extensive summer tour. After three months of varied travel, the family returned to Washington in September, and took possession of the beautiful townhouse near the P Street Circle, in the northwest section of the city. Then they replaced their daughters and their little ward at the same school, not as boarders, however, but as day pupils for Mr. and Mrs. Force wished to have their girls as much as possible under their own care, believing home education to be the most influential for good, or for evil, of all possible training. When Congress met, and the season began, Mrs. Force took the lead by giving a magnificent ball, to which all the beauty, fashion, wealth, and celebrity of the national capital were invited, to which they nearly all came. The ball was a splendid success. The beautiful Elfrida Force became an acknowledged queen of society, and her lovely young daughter was the belle of the season. Had no one in the city then heard of her disastrous wedding broken up at the altar? Not a soul had heard of it. Not one of those friends and acquaintances of Mrs. Force, whom she had met in Washington. For, be it remembered, she had written to no one of her daughter's approaching marriage, and had bid to the wedding only the nearest neighbors and oldest friends of her family. Odalite was saved this unmerited humiliation, at least, though many who admired the beautiful girl wondered that the lovely dark eyes never sparkled, the sweet lips never smiled. 
In this season she had several eligible offers of marriage, one from a young officer in the army, another from a middle-aged banker, another from an aged cabinet minister, a fourth from a foreign secretary of legation, a fifth from a distinguished lawyer, a sixth from a brilliant congressman, a seventh from a fashionable preacher, and so on and so on. All these were declined with courtesy. Odalite took very little pleasure in the gay life of Washington, and very little pride in her conquests. Her sole delight was in Lee's letters, which came to her under cover to her mother, but were read and enjoyed by the whole family. Lee certainly was a faithful servant of the great republic, and never neglected his duty. But yet his most chiefest occupation must have been writing to Odalite, for his letters came by every possible opportunity, and they were not only letters— but huge parcels of manuscript, containing the journal of his thoughts, feelings, hopes, and purposes from day to day. And all these might have been summed in one word, Odalite. She also sent letters as bulky and as frequently, and all that she wrote might have been condensed into a monosyllable, Lee. These parcels were always directed in the hand of her mother. Ah, mother and daughter ever felt that the eyes of an implacable enemy were secretly watching them, so that they must be on their guard against surprise and treachery. They suffered this fear, although they never heard one word from or of Angus Anglesia. He might be dead, living, or imprisoned, for aught they knew of his state, condition, or whereabouts. In the distractions of society, however, they forgot their secret fears, for indeed they had no time for reflection. This was one of the gayest seasons ever known in the gay capital. Reception, ball, and concert followed ball, concert and reception in a dizzy round, and the forces were seen at all. If they had purposely intended to make up for all the long years of seclusion at Mondrier, they certainly and completely succeeded. At the end of the season they took a rest, but they did not leave Washington until June, when the schools closed, and then they placed little Rosemary Hedge in the hands of Miss Grandier, who came to the city to receive her, and they went to Canada for the summer. As this first year passed, so passed the second and nearly the whole of the third. It was in September of the third year that the monotony of winter society and summer travel was broken by something of vital interest to all their lives. They had just returned to Washington, replaced their youngest daughters and their ward at school, and settled themselves with their eldest daughter in their townhouse, which had been renovated during their absence. It was a season of repose coming between the summer travel and the winter's dissipations. They were receiving no calls, making no visits, but just resting. One morning, the father, mother, and daughter were seated in the back piazza which faced the west, and was, therefore, on this warm morning in September, cool and shady. The piazza looked down upon a little backyard, such as city lots can afford but every inch of the ground had been utilized, for a walk covered with an arbor of latticework and grapevines led down to a back gate, and to the stables in the rear. On the right hand of this walk was a green plot, with a pear tree and a plum tree growing in the midst, and a border of gorgeous autumn flowers blooming all around. On the other side of the walk was another plot, with a peach tree and an apple tree growing in the midst, and a border of roses all round and the grapevine and the fruit-trees were all in full fruition now, and supplied the dessert every day. Mr., Mrs., and Miss Force were all seated in the pleasant Quaker rocking-chairs, with which this back piazza was furnished. 
Mr. Force had the morning paper in his hands, and he was reading aloud to the two ladies, who were both engaged in crochet work, when the back door opened, and a manservant came out, and handed an enveloped newspaper to his master, saying, "'The postmaster has just left it, sir.' "'And nothing else?' inquired the gentleman. "'Nothing else, sir, only that.' "'Only a newspaper,' said Mr. Force, laying it down carelessly, without examination, as he resumed the union and the article he had been engaged in reading. No one felt the slightest interest in the paper that lay neglected on the little stand beside Mr. Force's chair. Many newspapers came by mail, and but few of them were opened. Mr. Force went on with his reading, and Mrs. and Miss Force with their embroidery. And the neglected newspaper, with its tremendous news, lay there unnoticed and forgotten with the prospect of being thrown, unopened, into the dust-barrel which must certainly have been its fate, had not Odalite chanced to cast her eye upon it, and to observe something unfamiliar in its style and character. In idle curiosity she took it up, looked at it, and gave a cry. CHAPTER Six: NEWS FROM COLONEL ANGLESIA "'What is it, my dear?' inquired her father, as Odalite, with trembling fingers, tore off the envelope and opened the paper." "'It, it is, it is postmarked Angleton,' she faltered. "'Angleton, give it to me,' peremptorily exclaimed Abel Force, reaching his hand and taking the sheet from his daughter, who yielded it up and then covered her eyes with her hands, while her father examined the paper, and her mother looked on with breathless interest. "'Thank heaven!' exclaimed Abel Force, as his eyes were riveted on a paragraph he had found there. "'What, what is it?' demanded Elfrida Force, in extreme anxiety, while Odalite uncovered her eyes and gazed with eager look and lips apart. A scoundrel has gone to his account. The earth is rid of an incubus. Listen, this is the Angleton Advertiser of August 20th, and it contains a notice of the death of Angus Anglesia. Anglesia, dead, exclaimed mother and daughter, in a breath, and in tones that expressed almost every other emotion under the sun except sorrow. "'Yes, dead and gone, too, his deserts,' exclaimed Abel Force triumphantly. But catching himself up short, before he ended in a word that must never be mentioned, under any circumstances, here is a notice of his death. "'Read it,' said Mrs. Force, while Odalite looked the eager interest, which she did not express in words. Abel Force read this paragraph at the head of the death list. "'Died, on Monday, August 10th, at Anglewood Manor, in the forty-fourth year of his age, after a long and painful illness, which he bore with heroic patience and fortitude, Colonel the Honorable Angus Anglesia. Dead, muttered Elfrida Force thoughtfully. Dead, echoed Odalite gravely. Yes, dead and doomed, exclaimed Abel Force, catching himself up before he had used an inadmissible word. Then thank heaven, I am free, "'Oh, I hope it was no sin to say that,' exclaimed Odalite. Her father stared at her for a moment, and then said, "'My dear, you were always free.' "'I could not feel so while that man lived,' she said. "'Why, what claim could the husband of another woman set up on you?' demanded Mr. Force, in surprise. "'None whatever,' replied Elfrida Force, answering for her daughter." But after all that she has gone through, it is perfectly natural that a delicate and sensitive girl like Odalite should have felt ill at ease so long as her artful and unscrupulous enemy lived, and should feel a sense of relief at his departure. 
I suppose so, said Abel Force, who was scanning the first page of the Angleton paper. And I suppose also that none of us exactly share the profound gloom, which, according to this sheet, has spread like an eclipse over all the land, on the death of her illustrious son. The leading article here is on the death of Anglesia, with a brief sketch of his life and career, and such a high eulogium, as should only have been pronounced upon the memory of some illustrious hero, martyr, Christian, or philanthropist. But then, this Angleton paper was, of course, his own organ, and in his own interests, and in those of his family, or it would never have committed itself to such fulsome flatteries, even of the dead, whom it seems lawful to praise and justifiable to overpraise. "'Read it, Abel,' said Mr. Force. "'Yes, do, Papa dear,' added Odalite. Mr. Force read, "'The great soldier of Indiana is no more. "'A profound gloom, a vast pall of darkness, "'like some huge eclipse of sun and moon, "'has fallen upon the land at the death of her illustrious son. "'Colonel the Honorable Angus Anglesia "'died yesterday at his manor of Englewood. "'The Honorable Angus Anglesia was born at Englewood Manor,' On November 21st, 18 blank, he entered Eton at the early age of 12 years and Oxford at 17. He graduated with the highest honors at the age of 22. He succeeded his father on December 23rd, 18 blank. His tastes led him to a military career and he entered the army as cornet in the Honorable East India Company's service in his 25th year. His distinguished military talents, his heroism and gallantry, his invaluable services during the Indian campaign are matters that have passed into national history, and become so familiar to all that it would be impertinent to attempt to recapitulate them here. Colonel Anglesia married, firstly, on October 13th, 18-blank, Lady Mary Merland, eldest daughter of the 6th Earl of Middlemore, by whom he has one son, Alexander, born September 1st, 18-blank, now at Eton. Her ladyship died August 31st, 18 blank. Colonel Anglesia married, secondly, December 20th, 18 blank. Odalite, eldest daughter of Abel Force, Esquire of Mondrier, Maryland, United States, by Lady Elfrida Glennon, eldest daughter of the late Earl of Enderby, who survives him. There is no issue by the second marriage. Abel Force finished reading, dropped the paper, and stared at his wife and daughter, who were also staring at him. All three seemed struck dumb with astonishment at the audacity of the last paragraph. "'Who is responsible for that?' demanded Mrs. Force, who was the first to find her voice. "'The reckless braggart who has gone to the devil, I suppose. No one else could be,' said Abel Force, indignantly. "'You are right. No one but Anglesia could have been the originator of such a falsehood. "'And here is no mention made at all of the real second marriage and of the real widow.' whom, by the way, he must have married within a few weeks after the death of his wife. Yes, let us see. Great heaven, unless there is a misprint, there has been an infamous crime committed, and a heinous wrong done to that Californian widow, whose marriage with Colonel Anglesia was registered to have taken place on August 1st, 18 blank, full six weeks before the death of Anglesia's wife, which took place on August 25th. And in that case... Yes, in that case, the diabolical villain had the legal right, if not the moral right, to marry our daughter. Great heaven, how imperfect are the laws of our highest civilization, when men have the legal right to do that which is morally wrong. Oh, oh, I will never acknowledge the validity of that marriage ceremony. 
"'I will never call myself that man's widow, "'or wear a thread of mourning for him,' exclaimed Odalite. "'Who could be very brave now that her mother's great enemy was dead, "'and her mother forever safe from his malignity?' "'You need not, my dear, nor need the poor Californian woman ever suspect that any darker wrong than the robbery of her money has been done her. Why, either, should we be so excited over this discovery? It is no new villainy that has come to light. It is simply that he really wronged the Californian widow instead of you. The man is dead. Let us not harbor malice against the dead. He can harm us no more, said Abel, in his wish to soothe the excited feelings of his wife and daughter. But, ah, uh, he knew nothing of the greater cause those two unhappy ladies had had for their detestation of their deadly enemy. But now he was gone forever, and they were delivered from his deviltries. It was the thrill of a great deliverance that so deeply moved them both. All felt it, even Mr. Force, who soon arose and went out for a walk to reflect coolly over the news of the morning. Elfrida and Odalite went into the house and tried to occupy themselves with the question of luncheon and other household matters, but they could not interest themselves in any work. They could think of nothing but of the blessed truth that a great burden had been lifted from their hearts, a great darkness had passed away from their minds. Late in the afternoon, Wynnette, Elva, and Rosemary came in from school. Odalite told them that Colonel Anglesia was dead, and showed them the paper containing the notice of his death and the sketch of his life. At first the children received the news in silent incredulity, to be succeeded by the reverential awe with which the young and happy hear of death in the grave. Wynnette was the first to recover herself. "'Oh, Odalite, I am glad, for your sake, that you are freed from the incubus of that man's life. I hope it is no sin to say this, for I cannot help feeling so,' she said. "'I hope the poor sinner truly repented of his iniquity and found grace even at the eleventh hour.' breathed the pitiful little Elva. "'I don't know,' sighed quaint little Rosemary, folding her mites of hands with sad solemnity. "'I don't know. It is an awful risk for anyone, more particularly for a man like Colonel Anglesia.' "'The vilest sinner may return, you know,' pleaded Elva. "'Yes, he may, but he don't often do it,' said Wynnette, putting in her word. "'Let me read the notice of his death and the sketch of his life,' suggested Odalite for she had only shown them the paper containing these articles. "'Yes, do, Odalite,' said Wynnette. Odalite read the brief notice, and then she turned to the sketch and said, "'This is longer, and I need not read the whole of it, you know.' "'No, just pick out the plums from the pudding. I never read the whole of anything. Life is too short,' said Wynnette. The other two girls seemed to agree with her, and so Odalite began and read the highly inflated eulogium on Colonel Anglesia's character and career." The three younger ones listened with eyes and mouths open with astonishment. "'Why, they seem to think he was a good, wise, brave man,' gasped little Elva. "'That's because they knew nothing about him,' exclaimed Wynnette. "'Isn't there something in the Bible about a man being a good man among his own people, but turning into a very bad man when he gets into a strange city where the people don't know who he is?' inquired Rosemary, very gravely. "'I believe there is, in the Old Testament somewhere, but I don't know where,' answered Elva." That was the way with Anglesia, I suspect. He was a hypocrite in his own country, but as soon as he came abroad he cut loose and kicked up his heels. I mean, he threw off all the restraints of honor and conscience, explained Wynnette. Odalite resumed her task, and read of Anglesia's birth, his entrance into Eton, and afterward at Oxford, 
his succession to his estates, his entrance into the army, his marriage to Lady Mary Merland, the birth of his son, and the death of his wife. There she stopped. She did not see fit to read the paragraph relating to herself, and to prevent her sisters from seeing it, she rolled up the paper and put it into her pocket. They did not suspect that there had been any mention made of his attempted marriage to Odalite, far less that it had been recorded there as an accomplished fact. But they wondered why his marriage to the Lady of Wildcats had not been mentioned. "'And is there not a word said about his Californian nuptials?' demanded Wynnette. "'No, not a word,' replied Odalite. "'Ah, you see, he wasn't proud of that second wife. She wasn't an earl's daughter.' "'I wonder how Mrs. Anglesia will take the news of her husband's death when she hears of it,' mused Elva. "'Ah,' breathed Wynnette. Their talk was interrupted by the entrance of their father, who had just come in from his long walk. "'Oh, Papa!' exclaimed Wynnette. "'We have just heard the news. Oh, won't Lee be glad when he hears it?' "'My dear children,' said Mr. Force, very solemnly, and also a little inconsistently, we should never rejoice at any good that may come to us through the death or misfortune of a fellow-creature. But, oh, Papa, in this case we can't help it. There's the dinner-bell, said Abel Force, irrelevantly. End of chapter 6